Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. While you are there, you can learn more about who we are as a church, see the time and locations of our weekend gatherings, and see the different reoccurring ministries that happen on a weekly basis. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. So this morning we are beginning a series called Let's Talk. And uh, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be spending some time talking about talking about things that maybe are kind of uncomfortable or things that it's almost difficult to have respectful conversations about between people because of maybe it's uncomfortable or maybe because it's enraging or, or maybe because it just isn't something we want to talk about. And, and, and so this morning, this morning we're starting the next three weeks talking really about how the world around us divides us and how we as human beings really are, in the biblical terminology, because of sin... I just got really distracted because there's a cobble, there's a, like a, a, I just have to take, there's, like, this is a, a spider web. Wow. Coming from the ceiling. That is a, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, the light hit it, now it's on my hand. But anyway, I, I just got really distracted. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, talking about being divided, uh, <laughs> That our, our, our world really does move it that way, and it really is a result of sin. If you're here this morning, and, and maybe uh, you are not all in with Jesus, you're kind of like, well, I'm not totally sure about this. Um, my prayer for you this morning is that you will get a, a, an accurate picture of who Jesus is, who God is, not who maybe God has been represented to you to be, through Poor examples. Um, and my prayer for those of us who are Jesus followers this morning, that, that we would set aside some of our own preferences and things that we've decided are important and that we recognize that maybe our priorities aren't always on target with the priorities of Jesus and that we would be willing to, to hear what God has to say to us this morning. Um, you're probably all familiar with this, this, uh, this statement, all for one and one for all, united we stand and divided we fall. Anybody remember where that's from? The Three Musketeers, yes, yes. That's a quote from The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas, and uh, it's a basic truth that we all would agree with, wouldn't we? I mean, I don't know if anybody really disagrees with that statement, um, that everybody knows that unity and peace are always going to be better for everyone than division and hostility. But knowing that, and, and really no one in any context disagreeing with that, we have a hard time getting there, don't we? Um, hostility and division is, is really what runs our world, even though everyone would say, yeah, peace and unity is better than hostility and division. Um, the unfortunate reality about our world is that our world does run on division. It's, 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 I would almost say that, that division is the fuel that keeps things going. 
Um, you know, there's, there's nothing like a good conflict to get people going and get people thinking and, and, and get things happening. Uh, you know, it's interesting, when you think back to World War II, it was, it was, it was the World War II that, that brought our country, it was a conflict, it was a hostility, it was division that brought our country out of a recession. <laughs> interesting. Uh, it, w- in fact, when we talk about war, um, maybe a short history of war, war is defined as an act of conflict that's claimed more than 1,000 lives. So that's, that's what war is de- defined as. It's, it's an act of conflict that's claimed more than 1,000 lives. In, in, in 3,400 years of recorded history that, that they can find, humanity has been at peace for 268 of those years. So that's, that's 92% of the time in the last 3,400 years, there's been war that, that has characterized our history. Um, it, it's interesting that uh, probably one of the areas that we can see most clearly the, 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 the division and the polarization of, of our country is in politics. Um, that's probably a place where we can see it most clearly. In fact, when we go back to the 2016 election, uh, it's, it's talked about how that's, that's one of the most polarizing and uh, divisive elections that, that people remember, although really all elections are divisive and polarizing. But, but uh, there was, it was described in one article that I read. Um, they used these three terms to describe the 2016 election. People were shocked, some people were horrified, and some people were delighted. They called it a gulf of mutual bafflement. <laughs> Talk about someone, whoever wordsmith that is brilliant. <laughs> a gulf of mutual bafflement, that everyone was baffled at what everyone else thought and felt. Uh, a recent poll about politics and the unity and division of our country um, found that eight out of ten Americans say that our country is mainly or totally divided. And, and I don't know, maybe the silver lining in that is that we are overwhelmingly in unity that we are divided. <laughs> and maybe that's the good thing. Maybe we can find you know, our unity in recognizing that we are so far apart from each other and disagree with, with each other so much. Uh, you know, in, in, it's not just those things. It's not just the, the, the wars and, and, and the politics and that, but, but, but really there's, it, it seems that anything that you bring up is something that people are divided about. Big things and little things. Uh, you know, and, and again, another debate today. And, and it's interesting that this debate itself is, seems to, to want to talk about violence, but, but when you talk about it, people get violent about it, which the right to bear arms or not bear arms. The Second Amendment issues and the, and the debate about that and the conversations about that and, and, and what it means. You've got a group of people on one side who, who, who believe and feel very strongly and live by convictions that, that, that people, we as people, have, have the right, and, and, and it's not only the right, but responsibility to bear arms to protect people and have peace, but then you've got another side of people who say, look what happens when people have those rights. 
And, and, and then you go into, uh, an, an, which seems to be even a, a, maybe a minor thing, but it's no less violent argument with this is, is do I eat meat or uh, do I not eat meat? Am I a carnivore or am I a vegan? It's interesting, we've got some friends in South Dakota still, and, and she's, a, she's a family uh, of, of cattle ranchers. She's got a family ranch. And uh, this past week, I don't know if you saw it in, 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 in social media or the news, but um, Ellen uh, on her show, who Ellen is probably one of the nicest people um, on, on, like in media, in, in TV. Um, but Ellen um, made a statement on her show. She said, she just made a simple statement, and she said, hey, if you eat meat, eat eat a little bit less and make the world a better place. If, if you eat seven meals of meat a, a week, then eat six, which seems like, a, you know, doesn't seem like those are fighting words. Um, but anyway, so this, 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 this woman in South Dakota who, who's a family ranch and that wrote actually a letter to Ellen, which was actually a very kind and generous and, and respectful letter saying, saying that she appreciates Ellen and the way Ellen is so kind and so helpful to people. And she said, I would just love to, to have a conversation with you about the realities of, of us as a family and a ranch and, and raising beef cattle and talked about, she said, you know, there's some misconceptions that are out there that I'd love to just talk about. Again, both sides, super respectful but the frenzy that happened because of that. This gal who's a cattle rancher said that um, her family's received death threats. <laughs> and uh, there was a statement that, that I saw, uh, uh, someone said, um, go to hell, you animal murderers. <laughs> and again, both sides, though, can get unbelievable about something that doesn't seem really that significant to hate other people about. Um, you know, in church, we can, we can talk about, do you, you know, we're divided about uh, traditional or modern or contemporary or, or whatever that is and the styles and, and, the, and, and that kind of stuff. We, we, we draw dividing lines about that. If you want to get a group of Christian people into an argument, just bring up home, public, and private schooling. And you can just throw that bomb in there and let it explode and just watch what happens. <laughs> You got a bunch of people who lose their salvation every day right there. <laughs> but we laugh about it, but, but we laugh because it's kind of true, isn't it? You probably, you may have gotten into those. Uh, and, then, and then for me, a pretty significant place in my heart is the, the thing that divides all people is um, what's better, uh, Reese's Pieces as a peanut butter candy or peanut butter M&Ms. And I mean... I, I don't care what you think, and I, I don't like to take sides, so I'm going to keep my preferences to myself. Um, I don't really take a side on stuff like that, because I'm about Jesus. <laughs> um, I did that just so I can have an excuse to eat candy during my sermon, um, but I do prefer peanut butter M&M's over Reese's Pieces. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and it begins. <laughs> Are you a homeschooler? No, just kidding. <laughs> I could have done that with public or private. Anyway, just came out that way. <laughs> but it's so accurate. It's so true. You see, almost everything we encounter demands that we declare a side 
And when we do, here's what happens. We automatically are perceived as standing against the other side in totality. That we, that we, that we just are against everything that they believe, which, which is almost never true in any of those contexts. The people on different sides have some things in common there's just an unwillingness to recognize those things and start to, to talk and, and, and discuss. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at how our culture is set on polarizing people and setting them against each other and how this is even prevalent in the church, and we'll compare that to what Jesus says. And so this morning, I want to, I want to look at, at what the world, just the reality of the world and, and what the Bible says about this thing in a broad stroke. I was uh, doing some research this week, and I came across a a guy named Paul Bloom, who's a psychologist at Yale University. He's the professor of psychology and cognitive science. Not a believer, not someone who, who, who pursues Jesus. Um, recently, he was interviewed about why human beings do terrible things to each other, all the way from, from genocide, a huge thing, all the way down to shaming each other. Why human beings do terrible things to each other. And, and he began talking about how many people blame the cruelty and division around us on the dehumanization of others and seeing them as less than human. And that's why we do terrible things to each other. And, and he said that that's not entirely wrong, but he said that's actually very incomplete from what he has studied and, and found to be true. In fact, it's not as much about dehumanization as it is about humanization. Here, listen to what he says. He says, a lot of cruelty we do is because we do recognize the humanity of the other person. And he goes on to qualify it this way. He says, and think about this for a second. We see people as humans, as blameworthy, that we can blame them, as morally responsible, that they're responsible for what they've done to us, right or wrong, as they themselves cruel, so they deserve bad things done back to them as not giving us what we deserve, that we see them as not giving me what I deserve or as taking more than what they deserve. He goes on and he says this, and so we treat them horribly precisely because we see them as moral human beings. And then he says, it is central to who we are. You know what's interesting about, about his statement, coming from a completely non-Christian perspective? He essentially just described the fall in Genesis 3. He just described sin without using any biblical terms. He just described exactly what happened in the fall in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, 5, uh, in the conversation between Eve and the serpent... The serpent says about, about this tree that, that, that God said, I don't want you to eat of this tree. And, and, so, and so the serpent says to Eve as they're having this kind of little argument, he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, what, what I think the problem with the, way, the reason we treat each other poorly is because we all think we are God's. We want everything that we want, when we want it, how we want it. We want people to serve us. We want people to always, always agree, to, agree with us. 
And so, so basically, the serpent says to Eve, he says, that you will be like God. You can be your own God. You don't have to follow that God. And, and like God, how, how could we be like God that we recognize the blameworthiness of other people? That people are wrong. That people are morally responsible to God as author of life. Instead of being morally responsible to God, we want people to be responsible to us <laughs> and our preferences and our ways. And that God deserves all things, yet we take more or want more than we deserve, yet God still gives us so much. See, really, it comes down to, to the reality. Paul Bloom explains it this way. The Bible explains it the same way, except using specific terms like sin. The reason we do terrible things to each other and the reason we're so divided is because of sin. And sin includes but goes far beyond doing bad things to each other because you see, sin is any feeling or thought or speech or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all things. That's what sin is. Sin is not treasuring God over all other things. It's that something is more important than God and you make that your pursuit. It's a heart that prefers anything above God. And that's the rebellion. And so what happens is this is the foundation of why we're divided because we treasure ourselves plus all kinds of other things and we are hell-bent on protecting what we want and that is the basis of sin. And that's the basis of why we are divided, why we are separated, why we do terrible things to one another, why we put each other in these categories and boxes and we say that person can't have their way because it threatens my godness, <laughs> me getting what I want. Paul Bloom concludes in his, this article and he says this, and listen to what he says here. We, this is what he thinks is the solution to the reason we treat each other so terrible. He says, we need a culture less obsessed with power and honor, which is all about me, right? And more concerned with mindfulness, thinking of others, and dignity. That's actually just another way of saying what we said last week as we finished 1 Peter in chapter 5. Humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. You see, what... what, what what Paul Bloom says there is when he talks about mindfulness of we need to think of others before ourselves. And when he says dignity, that's another way of saying recognize the image of God in others. Recognize that we are imagers of God. And, and so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And I just want to look at verse Verse 9. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, what we see there is, is that Jesus is talking through the Beatitudes, and he's basically giving those who follow him a list of things that we are called to, to, to represent, to reflect. And, and, so, and so in Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says this, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. One of the things that we have to be careful about is that being a peacemaker is not how you become son, a son of God. 
Because this isn't about how you become a son of God because we know that the way you become a son or daughter of God is, is through faith in Christ. John 1.12 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. And in Galatians 3.26, Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So it's not about becoming a son of God, but what Jesus says here, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, is not about how to become a son of God, but that sons of God are in fact peacemakers. That's what you are if you have received Christ as your savior and you follow Jesus. You are a peacemaker. Now here's the question. How many people would describe Christians as peacemakers from their vantage point? In fact, I would, I would, I would say that probably peacemaker is one of the least used terms that an unbeliever would describe a Christian as, especially an unbeliever whose values and morals are at odds with God's values and morals. You see, <clears throat> the reality is this, that peace is a defining characteristic of God. It is a foundational characteristic of who God is. God is a God of peace, Romans 16, 20, listen to what Paul says as he closes the book. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He says, the God of peace. In, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, Paul says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 13, 20, it says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. God is described over and over and over, central as a God of peace. God is a peacemaker. It's not only that his characteristic, his character is, is peace, but God is a peacemaker. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says this. Paul says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. What is, what is that? That's just another way of saying God made peace between him and the world. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation, this message of peace. God is a peacemaker. Not only there, but, but in, in, in Colossians 1.20, we read, and through him, Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, what you'll notice in, in, the, in the passages, in the, in the verses that I've been reading, all of them have to do with peace, but there's some, for some reason, there's, there's violence in each one, isn't there? Again, again, Colossians 1.20 says, Jesus making peace by the blood of his cross. See, when we think of peace, we think of something that is just peaceful, restful, Nothing's threatening or tension, yet we read in these passages, it talks about peace, but it also talks about a sacrifice for peace, that there's always a cost for peace. And we see in Scripture that the cost that God paid for peace was the death of his own son, of Jesus Christ. 
God himself died, that was the cost. That was the sacrifice for peace. God is peace-loving and peacemaking at his own expense. See, God, who's all-powerful, could just say, I'm going to declare peace. Instead, God sacrifices for peace. And we still have to make a decision. See, what God loves, we love, and what God pursues, we pursue. Here's the thing that we need to recognize, first and foremost, living in this world that's full of division and and totally polarized. And that's this. God's children are willing to make sacrifices for peace the way God did. God's children are willing to make sacrifices for peace the way God did. How did God sacrifice for peace? He gave himself to a people who didn't want him, to a people who wouldn't listen to him, to a people who said crucify him. God's children are willing to make sacrifices for peace the way God did. You know, moving further into Matthew chapter 5, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. Jesus says this later in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Do you become sons of your Father who is in heaven? No, you become sons of your Father who is in heaven by placing your faith in Christ. It's again the reflective nature of this that those who are children of God are peacemakers. He says, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here's what Jesus is saying in these these verses. You see, peacemaking is all the acts of love by which we try to overcome the enmity between ourselves and others. Peacemaking is all those acts of love that we do to overcome the hostility that that is toward us for whatever reason from another source. That's what peacemaking is. And and understand that the the weight and the burden of peacemaking is on the person who follows Jesus, not on the person who doesn't. Because it's so easy to give up on peacemaking because you say, well, they're not being nice. They're not being reasonable. They're not logical. They're not listening. Guess what? The burden of being the peacemaker is on me because I follow Jesus. It's not on them because they don't follow Jesus. And, and so, so, so there's two examples that Jesus gives here which are, which are so simple and basic. And it's not saying solve all the problems of the world. He says two things. Pray for those who persecute you or your freedoms. Verse 44. Pray for those who persecute you or threaten your freedoms. Pray for them. Second thing, and, and can we pray for them? It's pretty easy to pray for them. I mean, in theory, 
Maybe it's hard to actually pray for people who, who seem to be against you and aren't representing you well and, and, and even are hostile towards you. It might be difficult to genuinely pray for them. But pray for them. And then the other thing he says is I would summarize it by saying, starve your grudge. Starve your grudge. You see, ignoring people who we disagree with or avoiding people we disagree with is the way of the world. You see, what if God took that approach? I'm going to ignore or avoid the people I disagree with. There would be no salvation. (laughs) We're done for. See, that's the way the world handles things. Jesus builds bridges and pursues reconciliation, which here, as, as Jesus states it, he says, greet everyone. The same way you would greet someone you love and you agree with and is your brother or sister in Christ, greet everyone this way. Why? Because he says, look, the Gentiles greet people they like, but they don't greet people they don't like. Even the tax collectors greet the people that can benefit them and they like, but they don't greet the people who are against them. See, Jesus says, and what I mean by starve grudges is genuinely greet those who you disagree with. How often have we as believers even said, I couldn't even be in the room with that person? Then how are you supposed to follow Jesus' command and greet them if you can't even be in the same room with them? See, see, Jesus says two things. He says, pray for them and greet them, which means I need to be right with Jesus and be praying for them and I need to be in their presence because I can't greet someone I'm never with. And I need to greet them the same way with the same heart that I would greet one of my kids coming home from college. Because if I don't, I'm just like anybody else who doesn't follow Jesus. You see, being a peacemaker is not necessarily being a peace achiever, okay? Okay? So know that that you don't even have to be successful at being a peacemaker. You just have to make sure that the the hostility and the stuff that's going on isn't because of you. (laughs) Because see, a peace achiever means that that the other person has actually made a decision to come to peace. But see, we don't control other people. The Holy Spirit works in the lives of other people. I'd say we're the peacemakers and the Holy Spirit's the peace achiever. How about that? Peace achieving is not your responsibility. But we need to be peacemakers. In fact, uh, Paul says in Romans 12, 8, he says, as as far as it is up to you, live at peace with all people. So the idea is that it's okay if you don't achieve it, but make sure it's not your fault that there's a bunch of problems. (laughs) Don't be the problem child. (laughs) Don't be the one who creates all the issues. And and here's the thing that, that I bet that we are struggling with because I struggle with this, is, is what if honoring God causes division? What if following Jesus is actually a source of division and hostility in, in, in the world around us? Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Um, here's, where, here's where Jesus says something, and, and here's what I want us to, to recognize and understand uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus says this, which almost sounds like it's contradicting what we just said. 
But listen to what he says. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Okay, just stick with me. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's the reality of peacemaking. Peacemaking will always come with a cost. And Jesus says, because I come to make peace between God and man, it means that I have declared war on the effects and consequences of sin. And here's the problem, is that we love sin more than we love Jesus. Because, you see, we prefer our sins so often over pursuing Jesus. And because Jesus has conquered sin, then when we prefer sin, then that causes division and that doesn't bring peace because there can't be peace between sin and Jesus. One conquers, one is conquered. And, and so you see, as, as, we, as, we, as we think about what Jesus says, and, and there's lots of verses that talk about God in a, in a, in a reference that it is not peaceful as we would define it, there are things that are not only worth, but require division over. There are things that require division. See, we are called to love and work for peace. We're called to pray for our enemies, do good, and greet all, and long for barriers between us to fall. But never abandon your allegiance to God and his word, no matter the animosity that it brings to us. You see, that's still consistent in being a peacemaker. Even peacemakers have lines that they will not cross. And the line that we as peacemakers cannot cross is that we must always be loyal and we must always have our allegiance to God over anyone else. Which I think is interesting because, see, we could interpret that in certain ways. We could say, okay, so when someone is not following God, then... I can declare war on them and tell them how terrible they are and tell them how all of these things and then I can go after them. Let's go back to Matthew chapter five, verse nine and I wanna read nine and I wanna read 10 because I think Jesus says what he says in verse 10 after verse nine for a reason. Matthew 5, nine, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Can you figure out why Jesus went from blessed are the peacemakers to blessed are the persecuted? Because making peace the way Jesus made peace will bring persecution to your life. That's why he says what he says in verse 10 after verse 9. Because if you are a peacemaker in the way that Jesus was a peacemaker, it will elicit persecution from the people around you. So what Jesus is saying is, hey, if you're doing this right, there will be division. But you keep making peace. 
even if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not your own self-righteousness' sake, but when you are truly living out the righteousness of God. You see, righteousness cannot be compromised to make peace with persecutors. And listen to what James says in, in James 3.17. This is, this is huge. But the wisdom from above, God's wisdom, is first pure. It's righteous. Then peaceable. Gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. I want you to write this down because I want you to remember this. And if you take nothing from this morning home, I want you to take this home. Write this down. Peace overwrites. Peace overwrites, but righteousness over peace. Peace overwrites, but righteousness over peace. What does that mean? It means when it comes to my rights and I feel that I'm being maligned or I feel I'm being mistreated or I feel that there's a wrong being done, then I pursue peace over my rights. But when it comes to righteousness, it's not that peace goes out the window, but I stay with righteousness. So when it's not just something that has infringed upon my rights, but when it's something that is wrong, that, that breaks God's heart, then I need to stick with righteousness while doing everything I can to bring peace but not compromising. So when it comes to defending those who cannot defend themselves, then I'm going to face some persecution for my beliefs and for what I do because that's about righteousness. But when it comes to my feelings about the Second Amendment, then it's actually about peace over my rights. And that's hard for me to say because I feel strongly. Peace over rights, but righteousness over peace. The primary way, and I want you to listen to this, and this is a hard statement, the primary way Jesus' followers take a stand is through sacrifice. The primary way that Jesus' followers take a stand is through sacrifice. Let me ask you this question, and, and I'm not saying one of these are bad, but I'm just saying one of these probably reflects Jesus better than the other. How many people do you think have been influenced towards salvation and surrender? How many people have been influenced toward Jesus through the behaviors and the, and the victories of the moral majority of the 80s and 90s versus the example of standing up to tyranny that Corey ten Boom did and gave her life for? You see, one came at a position of power 
and one came from a position of sacrifice. And I'm not saying that we don't use our rights in the country that we live to, to change and move things forward, but here's the thing. The primary way Jesus' followers take a stand is through sacrifice. Daniel stood against the king's decree, and what did he do? He stood and said, I will not worship. I will not follow this law, and I will sacrifice everything for it but I will stand firm. That's one of those statements that probably we need to wrestle with because it's not a convenient statement and it's not an enjoyable idea, but it's what the Bible shows us and it's what we're called to. It's much easier, I think, to vote for pro-life candidates than it is to walk with somebody who's hurting and scared and doesn't know what to do about their pregnancy. And that might take sacrifice. And I'm not saying to vote for candidates that have records that will support life is wrong. That's, that's a good thing. But what looks more like Jesus? What causes you to become more like Jesus? Voting or walking with somebody through the worst parts of their life, even if they make the wrong decision, to continue to make peace and love and walk. That's what Jesus does. And that's the sacrifice we're called to make. So, so here's the thing. Jesus says very clearly, there's two things that I want you to do to make peace. Pray for those who you are, have animosity with and greet them. Greet them genuinely. And it's interesting because, because how, does, how, does that, how does prayer and greeting destroy division? Because probably what we want to do is say, but look at the world around us. Jesus can't be talking about things are so bad. Jesus can't want that. Jesus, does, does he really expect me to go into a place with, with, with people who are so violently against everything Jesus represents? And Jesus wants me to greet them like I'd greet my own daughter. I want to read you a, a story in Luke chapter 13. It was a trap that the, the Pharisees were setting for Jesus. And I want you to hear what, what, what they say. It says, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than, than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the, the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You can read that passage and you can say, I don't really know what they're talking about. It talks about Pilate and mixing blood with sacrifices. What is he? Here's, here's the background to that story. Here's the story that the Pharisees were referencing. 
And Jesus takes a major social, moral, and political outrage of injustice and he turned it into a call for personal repentance because see, what Jesus calls us to do when we see these things in the world around us and we face these hostilities and these divisions, he calls us first to repent ourselves, make sure we are clean and righteous and that we are in a spirit of repentance. Here's the, here's the situation. So, so they bring this up and they talk about Pilate. So there was this, this moment in, in history in the Roman Empire and, when, and with, when the Jews were in Jerusalem and Rome ruled Jerusalem, Pilate decided to, to he, he made this plan to make an aqueduct. And uh, I mean, politics is politics and government is government. This sounds like something that would happen today. But Pilate, to build his aqueduct, he didn't have enough money, so he actually goes into the temple in Jerusalem and takes money from the treasury in the temple in Jerusalem. That's a no-no. That was unbelievably offensive to the Jews. And so he goes and he pilfers the, the treasury in the temple and he takes it to build his aqueduct. And so then the Jews come and a group of Jews come and they're by the temple, they're in front of the temple on the temple steps and they're, they're basically protesting what Pilate has done because they can't really do anything else because they don't really have any rights and so they're protesting. And Pilate takes a group of Roman soldiers and he has them dress as civilians and he sends them into the protesting crowd. And at a point during the protest, they pull out their concealed knives and swords and they slaughter the protesters on the steps of the temple while sacrifices were being made. Therefore, the Pharisees say, when Pilate murdered and mixed the blood of sacrifices. That's an egregious wrong, isn't it? You'd think that Jesus would say, yeah, Pilate is condemned for that. But instead, Jesus says, okay, hold on. First of all, are you clean before the Lord? Like you, because, because here's the deal. If you don't repent, if your life isn't marked by repentance, you're gonna end up in hell just like Pilate. So, so first things first. And then he says, hey, there's another incident that happened later, and there's this tower that, that killed 15 to 30 Jews because the tower fell over on them. And Jesus references that and says, hey, are they any better off than anybody else? Here's the deal. And the point he's making is everyone without Jesus is going to hell. And so what is most important is that your life is lived to make peace between God and those who are around you. It's amazing that Jesus doesn't even reference this horrible, egregious wrong that Pilate did. And so for Jesus, the eternal destiny of a human soul is a weightier matter, a far bigger issue than the temporary destiny of a nation. Jesus says, blessed are you when you pray for your enemies and greet your opponents with love and sacrifice like your heavenly father for the reconciliation of people to God and each other. I'm gonna leave you with a few questions this morning to consider this week as you're in your gospel communities, as you're talking with people because I would encourage you this morning that this week talk about this because this is a heavy and significant thing and, and this is just kind of an introduction to, to what God expects of us. 
And so here's the questions. Number one, as you think about the division and polarization of people around you, what role is God calling you to fill to usher in his kingdom? What is God calling you to do? And here's the, the big answer, is that God's calling you to be a peacemaker. The specific answer is, what is he calling you specifically to do in your circle of people that you engage? Second question is this. Of the issues you draw lines over, which ones are actually lines Jesus would draw? I don't think Jesus cares about peanut M&Ms. <laughs> and he doesn't care about a lot of other things that I am pretty ready to fight over. And so of the lines you draw, which ones are lines that Jesus would draw? And thirdly, this. When you do see wrong in the world, when you're called righteousness over peace, when you see wrong in the world around you, what does Jesus want you to do? Because I'll tell you this, wrestle with that and talk about it because here's the deal. As we just saw in Luke, Jesus is more concerned about every human soul than he is about anything else. And is my response to what is wrong around me, does that communicate that it's wrong, yet there's hope? Because even Pilate could repent and receive forgiveness of murdering all those Jews. Let me pray for us. And uh, I'd like to ask the prayer team to come forward. And uh, after, after I pray you're in, and you are looking for prayer this morning, I would invite you to come up and receive prayer for whatever you need. Jesus, we come before you this morning and I thank you for your love and the work that you do in our lives. And God, I thank you for being so clear with us that you are a God of peace. Father, I pray that we as your family, your children, your sons and daughters, that people would assume you to be a God of peace because of our example. Father, I pray that you would help us to process through your word and what you call us to do and just the tension that we live in in a world that is so far from good. And so God, I pray for those this morning who've seen you because of my example as a hateful God. I pray that they would see you in a new way and Father, for those of us who, who, who are children of God, that, that Father, you would help us to grow and lay down our rights for peace, yet pursue your righteousness over peace. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.